Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for those speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Carlos. Hey, my name is Carlos. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm also a Diet Coke and sugar addict. <laughs> and I've uh, recently come to terms with the fact that I'm also a compulsive drinker. Uh, not necessarily alcohol, that's part of I, I, anything. So, um, let me, let me uh, properly get to this. I attended my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting uh, right around Thanksgiving of 1975. I currently uh, have five and a half years of abstinence. So by doing the math, uh, you can see I've done some field research. <laughs> and overeating and uh, compulsive undereating. Um, I'm currently, I'll be uh, 68 years old in a couple weeks. Um, yeah, I weigh less now than I did when I was about 12 years old. So... Uh, I've essentially, I mean, I've had some uh, relapses. Uh, most of my relapses have come because I moved to places where there wasn't any OA meetings. So it's just, you know, I was cured for long, long, long periods of time. Twelve years here, you know, I, just, I never thought about eating. I, You know, I went to meetings regularly. And then um, I moved to Mammoth Lakes. In, uh, in 2001, something like that. And um, nobody there appeared to be a compulsive overeater. There were very few people overweight in town that I ever saw. Most people uh, were under the age of about 35. Uh, they skied all day, went mountain biking, took cocaine and drank. But <laughs> <laughs> what? we don't have a problem. So. Uh, I didn't have a problem either. I was in squeaky clean abstinence for quite a while, and um, I, I drift off. I drifted off my abstinence after about three months. What happens to me is I lose sight of the fact of the importance of me being a sugar addict. And it's. I believe, if, if I recall, it started for me. I began putting honey in my coffee. Is how I began losing my abstinence. That's fine for normal people, but for a person like me, this is a question of, I should always ask the question of how much, you know, how much coffee, how much honey. You know, when I'm drinking, when I'm drinking coffee, uh, my idea of starting the day is um, two Vente Starbucks. That's 40 ounces. And then I switch to Vente decaf Starbucks. You know, I can drink like, two more of those, and there's honey in all of them, you know, so I'm drinking, I don't know how much, what, and then, you know. Uh, my life, uh, God has been uh, very good to me, and I, I seem to have a very strong penchant for uh, tons of drama and excitement in my life, <laughs> and uh, God has satisfied me uh, totally. <laughs> to, to the best of my knowledge, I've had more... Uh, over-the-top stuff happened than anyone I know or have read about who has not been in prison. So, I mean, I, so I've never been arrested or been in prison. 
I think I, I, I'm pretty sure I can segue into all, most of it uh, as I keep talking. One of the important things that happened to me, I've had to do a lot of studying about my early life. It hasn't necessarily made me, quote, more abstinent, but I'm a lot more comfortable understanding why I'm a compulsive overeater. So, so what happened to me is my parents were Americans who met and married in South America. And I was born in Ecuador in 1942. It was a very traumatic birth. And um, I came to what I call this strange land of white people speaking this foreign language when I was two years old. So my, my first language was Spanish, and I, I didn't speak English until I went to kindergarten. It's taken me a long time to see the importance of the very early traumas I had uh, from, let's just say, before the age of five. And how, how that played into my, uh, I guess you'd call it addictive, escapist, underlying behavior pattern. I have, I, as a compulsive overeater, it's very clear to me now that I have like a misprogramming in my instincts, in my survival instincts. I'm quite certain every time I sit down to eat that there's not going to be enough later and I should eat more now. So, after 35 years in OA, after doing a lot of studying of psychology, where I'm coming from, my inner makeup, I weigh and measure a lot of what I eat, roughly speaking. So, I've been eating the same thing for breakfast every day for, I don't know how long, 30 years. Pretty roughly, exactly the same thing. So... Just in the last year, I finally, you know, like I used to just like pour it. It's a, uh, it's like a whole grain thing that you then cook. I mean, it's like it's two tablespoons. But you know, I would pour it in my hand, and I've been doing it for so long. But I decided to start weighing it just so I can get a lot more consistent. Well, one of the things I eat in the morning also is raisins. Goes in this. So this morning, I finally came up with a measure for how much raisins to put in this thing. And I've only been doing this for about three months. You know, actually measuring the raisins very carefully. And this morning I looked at the scoop that I've been using for the last, like, two months. And I was about to pour it in. I'm saying, this scoop doesn't hold enough. This is not enough. I'm going to need more. That's so, as I say, these inner patternings never go away. This is what makes me a compulsive overeater. Let me just segue into uh, another thing about some some of the things that have worked out in my life have taken a long, long period of time. It took me 20 years in OA before I could stop completely drinking diet drinks. You know, I thought, well, if I switched from uh, diet coke in cans, aluminum can, to uh, Diet Dr. Pepper in plastic bottles, that, you know, that would do it. But, um, you know, I say, so this was a struggle I had. It took a long, it took a long, long time for me to uh, knock that stuff off. When I first came to OA, I came in the uh, New York suburbs. I was uh, pretty much the only man in the program where I went, and also the only goyim. The, uh, I still, I, you know, what, what, what little Yiddish I know, I learned at OA meetings <laughs> back in the New York suburbs. And the talk would, 
you know, there was around the holidays, it wasn't, uh, you know, Christmas and Thanksgiving that was the problem, but it was constant talk about satyrs and, oh my God, can I stay away from the chocolate matzahs? <laughs> I didn't even know, I didn't even know what a lot of this stuff was. But, um, so when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, the everybody, quote, the program was a, food, a diet that was published by Overeaters Anonymous. The headquarters used to be in Torrance and it was called the Gray Sheet. And you, it, I mean, it listed what foods you could eat. It didn't say what foods you couldn't eat, but it, it suggested, I think, some foods you should avoid. And there are also the amounts. So, <laughs> coming to OA back then, you were handed, the, the quote program was, this piece of paper that was going to save your life, and you were directed to go out and buy a postal scale or a food scale. And, you know, you began weighing and measuring. So, I was fairly surrendered by the time I came to uh, OA in uh, 1975. The, um, the precursors to my immediate entrance to OA were that um, I stopped drinking, stopped drinking alcohol, and uh, about in 1973... So, I had a friend who had pancreatitis, and he would keep periodically drinking alcohol, so I went to visit and when he he drank alcohol, he got pancreatitis, which is apparently very painful. So, I I went to visit him in the hospital once. His wife, she calls me up and says, John's in the hospital again with pancreatitis, so I go, here's John flat in the bed, so I drank again, I said, it's terrible. So he explained to me all that they were doing for him with his pancreatitis, which they were basically they were fat. He, he was fasting. He had all these tubes in him. They were com- continuing to drain his stomach or something to give his pancreas a rest. So uh, it sounded like a good idea to me. So after I stopped drinking, about uh, everything was fine. I, I still kept smoking uh, two, three, and four packs of cigarettes a day, and everything seemed to be, you know, okay. But, um, I stopped uh, smoking cigarettes, and um, I'd lost a little weight from not drinking. I stopped smoking cigarettes, and next thing you know, I, you know, I start gaining weight. I'm like eating all the time. I was working uh, for a defense contractor down in New Jersey. I began having these terrible cravings for candy, and um, so the upshot was after a week or so. This this is a neighborhood, old-time neighborhood like Nutley, New Jersey, where they still had these old-time candy stores. They were just on their way out. But, so I went to the, this candy and cigarette store. I asked them when the candy wholesaler came, when the truck came. He told me. So I rearranged my lunch hour. I sat there and I waited for the guy to come. This, this thing, I'm very, very fussy about you know the things I eat and drink. So I was, it seemed to me there were one or two flavors of life lifesavers that I particularly liked, but not everybody had them in stock, so I waited for the wholesaler, and I made a special arrangement that I could buy the wholesale boxes, of, I, one of them I think was peppermint, I think peppermint lifesaver, or spearmint lifesavers, and also like a butterscotch. You know, so I was buying them, I don't know how many rolls were in one, 20 or 40 rolls in each one. So every week I would, you know, so so that was happening. 
I began gaining weight. I think I gained about 40 pounds. I was horrified. So I remembered my friend John with the pancreatitis. So I, re- I reasoned this all out. The, um, the thing about reasoning things out is the uh, correct answer is a barrier to recovery. <laughs> so, so I reasoned out that I had a, basically a blood sugar malady, like my friend John with the pancreatitis, and that if I gave my pancreas a rest, I'd be fine. And then, you know, this eating candy all the time and eating compulsively and carrying food around with me in my car would go away. So the reasoning is entirely correct. I do have a blood sugar malady. So my solution to it at the time was to stop eating. So I didn't eat for three weeks. That was how I was going to cure myself. I spent the first week living pretty normally. I spent the last two weeks in bed. I did nothing but drink water during that time. And I lost a lot of weight. I was sure I was cured. My friends were horrified. You know, they saw me like losing weight. You know, I looked terrible. I, was, I, I made an agreement with myself that I would keep up my lo- normal life of going to work and all my social activities. And if the fasting interfered with it, that I'd have to knock off the fasting. So, so after three weeks, I was still doing fine. I had to go to a uh, potluck dinner or something. It was at, I think it was after 22 days in the evening. And uh, I had to go with my wife to this thing. And it was a potluck, and I was just so ravenously hungry, I began eating a little bit of, I think it was jello or something like that. So... Um, I was pretty certain I was cured. The the next thing I remember was only a couple of days later, I was eating fruit salad. But but I cut up everything myself. The the thing I noticed was it was a huge bowl of fruit. You know, it was as much fruit as I would probably eat now in an entire week. I was eating it, and I said, you know, I, I still have this thing. So I kept doing battle with it. You know, this eating. And, and then what happened um, a couple of months later? I had a couple of, I had several friends I was pretty close with. They were horrified at how much weight I had lost. And then I seemed to be starting to gain it again. So um, I was sitting at a table at a meeting. And these two, this one uh, woman friend of mine, she was about 6'1, 250. And she had a little friend who was uh, a guy who I knew well. In any case, they're, they're both standing alongside me, looking down at me. I was sitting. I didn't get up. Carlos, we found this new thing. It's called Overeaters Anonymous. Just like the AA program, they use the same 12 steps, but they substitute the word food for alcohol. And then the final from my friend Pat, the woman, she looks down at me and points and says, and you should go. <laughs> so, you know, I'm very resistant to people telling me anything. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm not, not well, I, don't, I do poorly in class. I, I don't enroll in classes, you know. It's just, I, I got my own thing going on, and, uh, you know, like I say, the, the, you know, having the right answer is the barrier to recovery for me. I resisted this thing, Overeaters Anonymous, for, I think it was a couple months. And uh, I finally bumbled into my... I finally 
you know, I kept doing battle with this. You know, why am I carrying food around with me in my car? Why do I have jars of honey with me on, on the front seat of my car? You know, why do I, why when I go out, do I, do I make sure that I have, it's not just like an apple or something, like two or three apples. You know, it was like, it was, I just, so I mean, in any case, I bumbled into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting in, it was right after Thanksgiving in 1975. It was in, I think it was in a library, community room of a library or something like that in Hackensack, New Jersey. I had a hard time finding I come in. I'm, I just slink in and sit way in the back of the room. And the first thing that happens, I was sitting behind a woman who, she could have easily taken up two chairs. I mean, she was just, you know, she was this wide, sitting in a little school chair. And she sees me coming, she looks around, and <laughs> this huge, loud stage whisper that everybody can hear. She says, what are you doing here? I, you know, I was fairly thin because of this fasting and, you know, stuff I'd been, I'd been doing. Fairly thin. I was uh, eh, 30 or 40 pounds heavier than I am now. It was, you know, fairly thin for me. So, uh, I, you know, I didn't say anything. I looked at the 12 steps on the wall and I listened to what people... And um, I, I knew immediately that this was the answer to my problem. You know, that, that this... So I grabbed as much literature as I could. So again, this is my first introduction to OA. I grabbed um, the food plan and enough literature that I could figure this thing out and do it on my own. That was my idea. And doing it on my own lasted for about three days. And then the next, you know, I have the literature, I'm reading the literature. Anyway, it took me another, I was about three months of trying to do it on my own thinking that I had a very strong spiritual life going anyway. You know, that I was certain that I could just segue this food and whatever this problem was I had, you know, this blood sugar problem, into my current spiritual program. I just didn't think God needed or wanted me to be going to a bunch of, uh, bunch of additional meetings. So, uh, as I say, it was a couple months later, it was right, at, right around Christmas time, I went to my first, I went to uh, another OA meeting. A guy I knew told me about an OA meeting in the town we all lived in around Ridgewood, New Jersey. So I went to a meeting there. He said he attended the meeting. And, uh, you know, I heard people talking about get a sponsor, or do this, do that. And I said, you know, if I'm going to have to spend the energy to at least come to the meeting, I said, I might as well just follow the direction. Let's just see what happens. So, you know, I didn't want to get a sponsor. I didn't. So I asked this guy to be my sponsor. And he said, yes. He had he was sponsoring five other people at the time, and he was certain that I and a number of other people would never call him. So what used to happen is his, his line was busy all the time. So all six of us were calling him at, at one one night. This is the days when you made a food plan, you wrote out what you were going to eat, what the amounts were. And these are the amounts that you measured in your measuring cup or weighed on your postal bill, yeah. right? And, um, and then you'd call up your sponsor and tell them what you were going to eat the next day. I hated this. I still remember. I'd stare at the phone 
And I'd say to I'd say to myself, Have I reached such a low place that I need to write down what I'm going to eat, and then call up some guy and tell him? And I would answer my own question. And the answer is yes. <laughs> so. And let me just segue into my, my current view of my life. Some of it is just because of my increasing age, is that I think of myself in short term as being outpatient. So, you know, I, I really quote, let's just say, live in OA, and I'm lucky that I have a fairly no- large number of hours where I can enjoy myself in good health, but so I'm. That's how I view myself. So, anyway, this is uh, that's what that's how I morphed this thought about. Oh my God, do I need to call somebody up? And, you know, the answer is in. Yeah, oh my God, do I need to go to OA? Yeah, you know, I've done the field research. Yeah, yeah, I do need to go to OA. The um, let me just tell you another fairly recent thing that happened. Uh, probably it was only about two months ago. I finally had to stop drinking. I've stopped drinking coffee several times. As you said, I, I, you know, if I don't have two, actually it was Vente Americanos. Each Vente Americano has four shots of espresso. And then, not too much water, please. And, um, no, I can't put honey in it. I'm in a way. You know, the, the, actually, the last time I knocked off coffee, you know what happened? Because this was, it was about four years ago. I was going to that, what is it, the Saturday or Sunday morning Wilshire meeting there. And what happens to me, my brain, my brain goes, goes wiggy when I, when, because when I drink these huge amounts of caffeine like that. So what happened, I was backing into a parking space, and I have a truck, a Toyota pickup truck. There's some guy in a Cadillac who's also going to the meeting. And this is this is what happens to my brain. I'm backing up very slowly and carefully. The Cadillac is right behind me. I, I can't see it. You know, it's like the Indians couldn't see the ships, you know, coming to the tropical, the, the South Pacific for the first time because it didn't didn't compute. I back right into this guy's cattle. The guy, the guy that he brought to a meeting. For all, I don't think it's somebody here in the room. But the guy, he, he's bending over and he's going like this. Cut! Stop! And in my passenger window, while I'm backing up very ever so carefully, and it's like my attitude is, why is he saying these idiotic things? <laughs> this is, you know, this is another part of the personality I have that makes me a compulsive over it. It's just, uh, I, I just don't get it until I get it. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I stopped drinking. That that was, I think, the final time I stopped drinking coffee. It was like four years ago. But I, um, I might as well tell you the whole truth. I had a, uh, I had like four or five consecutive psychic readings about five years ago, five, six, seven years ago. Just one right after the other. You know, I mean, every six months or so. They all said, you're going to live a long, long time. You know, I could see the, the last girl was some girl in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> she, she's looking. I could see, you know, I could read her mind while she was she was trying to compute. And she's, it didn't fit into her computer how long this was going to, you know, I was going to live. She couldn't express it. So she was, so I walked out of there. I said, 
whoa, what am I going to do about this? I said, I don't want to be unhealthy. So I thought back to all these ancient Chinese and Japanese sages, and I said, well, they, they drink tea. So I've been drinking tea ever since then. The problem is I've been drinking like three, four quarts. <laughs> maybe, maybe more. Of, uh, it's not just tea. It's like organic black tea from, you know, India. And I have, I, you know, I arranged a contact who sends me organic Japanese green tea from a little tea shop. You know, it's, just, it's probably the loveliest tea in the world. It, I mean, it's just dark emerald green. My friend who was sending it, she would go back to the tea shop in Yokohama to buy this stuff. And she said, she said, no, it's just my friend that's just drinking it himself. And he says, he says, we have Japanese restaurants in, <laughs> in Tokyo that don't use that much tea. <laughs> so another, uh, you know, side product of that was, I know where all the bathrooms are on the west side of the <laughs> You know, so it's... Um, so this is fairly recent. You know, I've had to really surrender to the fact, you know, I just, I can't handle this. I'm uh, not only a compulsive, I'm a compulsive drinker, you know. And uh, normally I don't have headaches when I knock off caffeine. I had headaches from this tea lasted off and on for a full week. You know, it's not really a headache exactly, but, you know, this deep, like, throbbing way deep down in the middle of my brain. So... So anyway, this is, you know, why I'm here today, why I go to OA meetings on a regular basis. It looks like, you know, after this, in, during this five and a half years that I've, I've surrendered to the fact that, you know, I'm a full compulsive overeater, um, compulsive drinker. I have a very severe, not only do I have a severe blood sugar metabolism problem, but I'm, I'm very sensitive. I, I try to be tough, and it's just like, I, I had a friend who said, I tried to be evil, but I found out I was just being a pain in the ass. <laughs> so, no, but I try to be tough, you know. So, I, it's only fairly recently, the last couple of years, I've realized, probably very sensitive to lots of things, you know, any kind of medication, um, uh, even air pollution, things like that. I'm, I'm very, you know, underlying sensitive uh, body. So, in any case, I've, uh, for the time being, a day at a time, I've... Uh, you know, surrendered to the fact of being here. I go to go to two or three Overeaters Anonymous meetings a week. I go to several other uh, programs too. The uh, I was going to joke at the beginning, but I left it out. The uh, thanks for allowing me to come and share my experience, strength, and opinions here, <laughs> which I have a lot. Um, but nobody knows. I've been going to Al-Anon for many years, so uh, generally I keep my mouth shut. But I have a lot of very strong opinions. I have a lot of very strong opinions about OA. When I, I when I was in OA, uh, I'll try to keep it uh, non-judgmental. The board of trustees, the board, of, the governing board of OA, had at least a five or six hour meeting about whether to add bananas to the gray sheet, it, and it went on. The only reason it got resolved is because it went, the meeting went on so late, it was getting into everybody's dinner time. <laughs> so, finally, B was on the board at that time. He related this. 
but he he got the, he he got the um, he got the amendment changed so it was a, a one six inch banana. So, <laughs> so I'm just saying there's 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 been a lot of uh, I've I've seen a lot go on and I have a lot of opinions about it. The let me let me tell you my main. I was trying to trying to come up with a cogent cogent way of saying what it is I want to say without being too judgmental or opinionated. In my opinion, the way to get abstinent, there, there seems to be two, uh, two camps in uh, OA. There's the camp of, well, you, can, you start becoming spiritual and then eventually you'll get spiritual enough that you'll be able to be abstinent with food. Uh, there's uh, another version which is uh, you get abstinent with food and you uh, work the steps and or a lot of other processes, uh, in most particularly working with other compulsive overeaters on a one-to-one basis, and you'll become more spiritual. But you've been you know, abstinent from food this whole time. So there's these two. Because of my experience with the gray sheet, uh, a lot of other stuff I've read, and my reading of the experience of the Alcoholics Anonymous on which this program is patterned is that the way it works is you become abstinent from food. You stop the behavior. That by itself is a spiritual elevation. And by concentrating on that, then by working the steps, uh, you'll experience an elevation in... Uh, your spiritual consciousness. So, uh, I mean, for those who have been here any length of time, uh, I'm sure you're aware that basically OA is split apart several times. You know, I like to use the term schism. Um, If you're lucky, that's all I have to say about that. But let me let me just say, you know, uh, the big book of overeaters of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is something like the Bible. You know, people morph it into, you know, so it can mean just about anything you want. So there is one section there that says, um, once the spiritual malady is overcome, then we clear up physically and emotionally, something like that, or mentally, uh, mentally and, uh, and physically. Uh, yes, that's true, but the Alcoholics Anonymous works first and foremost by people knocking off the addictive behavior. So people are not drinking while they're uh, trying to become spiritual. So anyway, my experience of Overeaters Anonymous is that uh, I do everything I can to keep the addictive behavior under control or, you know, in abeyance, you know, not do the addictive behavior and then sometimes I'm spiritual and sometimes I'm not. I wanted to wait. Uh, I've never seen anybody do this at a meeting, but um, I have a uh, some OA bling here. It's one of the few photographs. I think the only photograph I have of me in my former life. And on the other side of that, I just as an exercise wrote down everything I ate or drank for the last week. So... If that's of any use to anybody, it may not be. Your food plan, is, I wouldn't even look at it. So. <laughs> I got my own. But anyway, it's here. Let me just uh, pass these out. I only had a couple. Uh, 
Yes, I say that's the only existing picture. I think my, I have, there were pictures, family pictures and stuff. A few of them around of me, but I gave all that stuff um, to my uh, daughter, who's about 30, 35 years old, because she's a pack rat. So she, I think she may have some more pictures. But um, that was my normal weight uh, or size. You know, back 40 years ago, I had, you know, I had like 42-inch waist. I was thin when I had a 40-inch waist. So, um, I don't, you know, it'd probably be better. I purposely left this to the very end. Oh, let me explain it to me. So, uh, uh, so I'm going to be uh, 68 years old. I should tell you that the upside of uh, being an ovary is anonymous. I, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't come to OA and hadn't, pretty much stayed here. Near as I can estimate, I've probably been abstinent 80-85% of the last 35 years. You know, it's totally saved my ass. It saved my life. Um, when I came here, as I said, I was smoking three, four packs a day. I, don't, I couldn't walk around the block. You know, I'd, I'd run out of breath. Um, so, I'm thin now. Uh, as I say, I weigh less now than I do. I have a... Uh, uh, I've been to Mount Everest uh, eight times so far. The uh, the hobby I uh, either created or fell into uh, after I became asshole was just hiking. I did it initially just to uh, you know just to further my abstinence and just get back in shape in my 30s. So as I say, this is 30 months. <laughs> I, I had a fine dining period at one time. So the the epitomic fine dining experience I had was um, I went out on a Saturday night with my now ex-wife from the picture there and um, I had a very nice duck dinner and I sidled up to the bar and I thought having an after dinner drink would be clever so the the one that looked the most interesting was green it was green chartreuse and I was particularly attracted to it because it's 130 proof so I had a green chartreuse and I thought it was great, so I had ten more. Yeah. You know, this is this is what goes on with me. You know, so it's like the hiking. You know, it's just like, well, yeah, I started hiking. <laughs> I've been to Mount Everest eight times. What's you know? Doesn't that what isn't that what happens? So um, yeah, I'm not interested in that many things. Um, the things I am interested in, I do like 120%. So, uh, happily for the time being, uh, being abstinent, being an overeaters anonymous is uh, one of those things. It's uh, not only saved my life, but the life of a number of people around me. Um, you know, I need the exercise. So, I still have a, I don't have a short fuse, but uh, boy, I get, I get really angry about things. I write a lot of nasty letters to people on you know, you can ask Barbara Boxer, she'll tell you. <laughs> I don't think it does any good. At least she writes back, so she's got to get reelected. Um, I could say more, you know, i got a lot of real intelligent things to say, but uh, I'd rather uh, leave a lot of time for, or as much time as possible for questions. So uh, thanks for letting me share. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you, Carlos. Um, did you summit uh, Everest? And if you did, how many times? No, the question is, did I summit Everest? Uh, no, I've been to the base of Mount Everest. The area at the base of Mount Everest eight times. I haven't 
yet summited. Uh, yeah. Hi, thank you so much. Um, can you talk about your uh, spiritual experience uh, after getting out of how, how that works for uh, you? know, the short answer to your question is no. <laughs> but, uh, there's a long answer to your question. I encourage uh, everyone, if you that my email address is on the bottom of those pages. They're not enough to go around, but my email address is my name plus J-I-I, so it's carlosg at gmail.com. I'll try to make this short. When I withdrew from alcohol several months afterwards, uh, I had one of those overwhelming spiritual experiences that... Bill Wilson talks about in the AA book. And um, my joke is that I've been recovering from my recovery ever since. Uh, what what basically happened to me is um, my spiritual experience like took me over. I've been to, I've been to Mount Everest eight times, but uh, I've been to India fourteen times. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's like the green chartreuse. Um, you know, I became more and more interested and more... I, I became very interested, you know, like Japanese green tea. And uh, so I had a guru from India and I used to go to India and stay for months at a time. Then I decided I didn't really like working anymore when I was about 39 years old, so I stopped working. And it's just... Well... Yeah, so this thing is just like... took me over... This whole thing took me over before I came to OA. And that's why I was certain that if I you know, followed a spiritual path, you know, it said that I had lots of spiritual understanding, you know, I wouldn't have to go to these meetings. I could, you know, and that's been a lot of my field research is, you know, so uh, I did, I had a discussion with God, I don't know when this was, it was like 10 years ago, and uh, the discussion went, okay, I need to be abstinent, you know, I don't want to go to OA. Literally, the answer I heard in my ear was, you can eat anything you want, you just have to go to meetings. I don't know if that's an answer, but... uh, Thank you.